Hey everyone, it's Sadia Khan. And I'm Asad Bhatt. And today's story takes us to a small town near Kansas City, Missouri, where in October of last year, a 22-year-old African-American woman ran to the home of Lisa Johnson, pleading for help. The young woman was wearing a short black latex dress and a tight metal collar with a padlock. Underneath that, there was a duct tape around her neck and she appeared severely malnourished. She had just escaped the basement of a 39-year-old white man named Timothy Haslip Jr. His crime? Kidnapping and rape in the first degree. His motive? That's what we are here to find out. This is Invisible Hate. For any new ears, Invisible Hate is a true crime podcast where Asad and I research and analyze crimes committed against minorities and share our findings with all of you. Uh, that's right, Sadia. And I'll add that we're not just your average true crime commentators. Sadia and I will be looking at cases where the victims may have been targeted for their minority identity. And based on what we learn, we'll try to decide if the case was likely a hate crime by the end of the episode. And listeners, stay tuned till the very end to learn about some additional resources where you can help. Hate crime or not, these victims definitely deserve our support. That's 100% right, Sadia. We'll be getting to some pretty heavy topics, and so it's really important to remember that these are real victims. Um, let's get started. So let me tell you, this story is insane. From misogyny and white supremacy to systemic racism, it has all the problematic elements. And I said, if you thought our previous episodes were disturbing, wait till you hear this story. Oh, no. Yeah. As a side note, in the recent articles, the victim in this episode is only identified as TJ. So that's how we'll refer to her today. Now, the story of her abduction begins along Prospect Avenue in Kansas City, Missouri, in early September last year. At half a million people, it's the largest city in Missouri, and Prospect Avenue runs right through the densest parts. News sources about this case never state the time of day or night that TJ was taken, nor do we know exactly what she was doing. But here's the thing, if you've ever lived in a big city, you know, people are always around. Maybe, you know, in small groups of friends, a few couples here and there, there's safety numbers. Sometimes, at least that's how I feel. But in this case, Prospect Avenue is a source of concern for the Kansas City Black community. And here's why. A local bishop named Tony Caldwell told CNN that African-American community leaders had already spoken to the police about, guess what, missing black women in the area. Oh, no. Apparently, Prospect Avenue is known for sex workers, and most of them are African-American women. So, given all of this, it seems like the police knew what was happening, right? If this is a part of town in which this regularly happens, obviously police know about it, the community knows about it, and so it would be a location that was on everybody's radar. Absolutely, yes. But what do you think the police did? <laughs> I'm, I'm guessing not a lot. Nothing. 
So to be clear, we don't know if DJ was a sex worker. So I definitely don't want to falsely suggest that. But it's important to note this detail, especially since we'll return to it later. I'm intrigued to hear what happens. And I want to talk a little bit about TJ's escape first before we go to the day off, because TJ is the only source of information about what happened on that night. So after escape, TJ tells local news outlets that she was on this street when Timothy Hazlitt Jr., again a 39-year-old white man, kidnaps her. So as said, we don't have all the information. The source material in this case is a bit fragmented, but I'm assuming either he dragged her into his car, gagged her, tied her hands, took her cell phone. We don't know that, right? If she was a sex worker, in fact, he could have just solicited her and she could have gone into the car voluntarily, right? And that's when the crime you know, could have happened. Like you said, we don't know the details and I'm sure more will emerge over the next couple months and, and we'll try to keep our listeners updated on this. Right. So from here, he takes her to his home along Old Orchard Avenue in Excelsior Springs, Missouri. Now get this, it's about a 40-minute drive from Kansas City. Now, TJ doesn't know where she is or what Hazlitt will do. That must be so scary. Imagine you're in somebody's car, stranger's car, you're abducted. You don't know what this person is going to do to you, right? Oh, 100%. So now, this town, Excelsior Springs, it's a relatively small town. A nothing ever happens here type of place. And yet, in Hazlitt's basement, based on TJ's account... He's built a small room where he holds her captive, restraining her wrists and ankles with handcuffs. Oh my goodness. The small town energy of the area probably protects him. There are far fewer people to see or hear something strange. And that happens in small towns, right? Yeah. You know, I've lived in you know small enough towns where people wouldn't really know what you're doing in your house. And building a small room like that in which you are building restraints and, and whatnot, sure, you could easily build something like that without people knowing, your neighbors knowing. I bet even me living in a city right now, I bet I could get away with doing something like that if exactly, I... Exactly, exactly. And that's why I said it wasn't until her escape a month later. So he kept her captive for a month until she was able to escape. Wild. That's wild. I don't know what the police was doing. It just makes my blood boil. It's so, so, so annoying. Yeah, we hear about these stories quite a bit. You know, people disappearing, usually women, and usually the ones we hear about are white women that are disappearing, right? And so you have to imagine that people do disappear quite a bit. And you assume that someone is looking for them in, in law enforcement, but I guess that's not the case for a lot of people of color. Right, absolutely. Now, the details of her escape also feel very unreal, almost like a scene from a movie, at least to me. Early on October 7th, this is a month after she was abducted, Hazlitt, get this, takes his eight-year-old son to school. This provides a window of time for TJ to get the hell out of there. So now I said you, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners may be thinking, why didn't she leave earlier, right? Why did she wait for a month? I don't have an answer to that, but I'm pretty sure she must have tried. Oh, you have to assume that she was locked in, that she was 
you know, handcuffed and she wasn't able to get out. I mean, it could have been a month. It could have been two days. It could have been six months, you know, until we find out more details, what took her so long, I will say, to get out. But it's shocking no matter how much time she spends in this room, you know, for her to get out. Now, down the street is 41-year-old Lisa Johnson, who is basically getting ready for work when she hears a woman's voice outside. It's TJ. When Johnson sees her thin body, the latex dress and padlocked collar and multiple wounds along TJ's wrists and ankles, she tells TJ she will call 911. That's the normal response, right? If I saw somebody in distress, I would do the same thing. 100%. But in response, TJ gets scared. According to Johnson's account to KMBC, TJ was worried that Hazlitt would kill her if the police were involved. Now, Asad, to me, this is quite worrisome because it indicates the amount of trauma TJ must have endured. Oh, there's no doubt. I would, that's exactly what I was thinking, the psychological trauma over the course of a month that he must have inflicted on her for her to be that scared of police. And, and similarly, we don't know what her experience had been with police as well, but clearly she is a victim of severe trauma at this point. Absolutely. And here do we learn about the possibility of other victims. Oh, no. So TJ claims that Hazlitt had already killed two of her friends. But eventually, yes, the police arrives. They confirm evidence of her sexual and physical abuse, including whip marks all over her back. That detail in particular really bothers me. It's the physical torture. The thought of physical torture on another human makes me so angry, Asad. And that too on a vulnerable young female. It just makes me so, so, so angry. Oh, the more that you present these details, the more bothersome it is for everybody that listens to it, right? I mean, the things that I'm thinking about right now, the fact that the son potentially was in the house the entire time. Right. I mean, all these details are just shocking. And I'm so grateful that she was able to get away. But, oh, I mean, she's going to be dealing with this for quite a while. Absolutely. But thankfully, on the way to the hospital, TJ points to the home of her captor. That same day, they arrest Hazlitt on a 500,000 bond and search his house in the basement. Police confirmed the small room that TJ had described. According to an officer who spoke to the Washington Post, the room was painted black and held multiple restraining devices. So he was preparing to have more than one captives in that room, and he probably held quite a few there. Certainly, if TJ is claiming that Haslett had killed two of her friends, you know, we don't know whether that happened while she was there previously right. or something that he, you know, indicated to her during the torture, during the abuse, points to extreme psychological trauma. I really want to know more details about these friends. I'm hoping that it'll emerge and we'll learn more about what happened. So unfortunately, we don't know a lot about the friends. As I said, this story is fragmented, but we wanted to bring this story to our listeners because it is such an important one and we knew that it won't be covered by mainstream media. And we are hoping that in the coming weeks and months, we'll get more information. And once we do, as you said in the beginning, we will share it with our listeners in some way or form. 
So the story doesn't really end quite there. Early reports of the incident say very little about TJ's identity. I think it's completely understandable, right? She's still alive and something like this is traumatizing enough without her information being all over the internet. So thank God for that. But now with more coverage, we know that she's for sure an African-American woman. And this is where we get into the potential hate crime element of this case. Are you ready, Asid? I've been waiting to hear what you aren't telling me, Sadia. So yes, I'm, I'm ready for this. Get this. The Kansas City Defender found racist social media posts from Hazlitt from the past year or so. Obviously, yep. And if this guy couldn't get any worse, these posts are pretty disturbing. He writes, and I quote, The race war started a long time ago. Wake up, you dumb bitch. In another post, he rants about Breonna Taylor and perpetuates harmful stereotypes about violence and African-Americans. And in yet another post, he calls African-Americans thugs and animals, ending that post with, and I quote, I will vote for Trump and I will continue supporting racist, oppressive policing of the blacks because as long as they are choosing to act like my enemy, then oppressed is exactly where they need to be. End quote. Wow. Yuck. Just disgusting. I don't even like having those words come out of my mouth. Words like this seriously send chills down my spine. I said, I, I feel so sick right now. Yeah, I mean, I think we're getting a really full picture of who this Haslett person is. Clearly, uh, you know, just some disgusting worldviews and racist views. And, you know, according to what he has allegedly done, just a, a really horrible human being. Absolutely. And another common trend we see in potential hate crime incidents is the role of law enforcement. And remember in the beginning, I said, this story has all the problematic elements, including systemic racism. So I was basically talking about role of law enforcement. Many times we know they are just inadequate to say the least. And that's a big part of this discussion, Asad. So let's rewind. Remember that the Kansas City Black community had been worried about Black women and possible sex workers going missing along Prospect Avenue? Right. Various social media accounts posted that four black women were killed and three more were missing. But in response, police completely ignored these concerns as mere rumors. They decided they were rumors. I don't know how and why and what evidence they had to decide. But they went as far as to call them completely unfounded. Why? Why? I don't understand that. So do you have an answer? I think there's a couple things for me. One, the fact that People can go missing and that nobody can kind of notice. And then when people do notice and they report it to police or to law enforcement, that nothing is done about it. And so, yeah, there's a lot of red flags here for me as well as to what the actual procedure is for when people go missing. And the idea that someone comes to you and you can so quickly determine it as a rumor. How does that happen? What in the investigation tells you that it's a rumor? Then we find out that there actually were people missing and potentially two murders as well. It, there's a lot going on here for sure. Asad, to your point, I will share this pretty warped rationale that police gives. So hear this. 
police claim that a missing person report has to be filed before they investigate. Sure, I mean, that makes sense. But Tony Caldwell, the pastor who spoke to CNN, pointed out that many of these sex workers may not have someone to report them officially, right? No safety net of family and friends. So if something happens to these women, the police wouldn't know. And a lot of times, sex workers, as we know, they are one of the most vulnerable, marginalized people out there. And I think a lot of times people are like, oh, they ran away from homes. They must have brought this upon themselves, which is so sickening and so distorted. But I think that's what was happening here. This, by the way, is why it's probably a good idea to consider at least the concerns spread through word of mouth, right? And while no other victims have been discovered, as I said in the beginning, those quote-unquote rumors may have been right. Remember the teacher told police that Hazlitt already killed two of her friends? Yeah. This raises a million questions for me, Asad. Did he take these other women before or after TJ? How often has he been abducting these young, vulnerable women? There could be a lot there we don't even know yet. Even though no other missing women have been confirmed, honestly, there is too much at stake to write off the victim's testimony. And I hope, I really hope and pray that police acts now. Based on you know this story and just other information that we are kind of all aware of, it's clear that sex workers are quite vulnerable to the whims of their clientele, right? And, and so the assumption is that Hassett probably did this in the past and has probably done it quite a bit and may, maybe not murder, maybe not a abduction, but certainly treated people like this in the past. And he's probably not the only one. And so what can we do to safeguard this community to make sure that this doesn't happen in the future and doesn't continue to happen. And obviously, this you know the assumption is also that this is happening across the country because in the majority of America, being a sex worker is is a crime. You know, Sally, I looked up some of the pictures of the missing women, and it's just so heartbreaking to see their faces and to know that they are out there somewhere and probably are victims of horrific crimes. It's it's really saddening. It is so disheartening, Asad, and also sex workers are mistreated by society in general. It's not just police or the law enforcement, right? And that is why it's so important to give them the rights that they deserve and treat them with dignity and respect. Agreed. And let me tell you, I've been tuning into this case as often as I can to get to the bottom of these details. But as I said, and I keep saying this, just to remind listeners that I wish we had more details, but we don't. So much is still up in the air. First of all, KMBC reported that TJ was treated and released back in October. And this is honestly one of the most frustrating things about these hate crime cases. So much attention is given to the perpetrator, and yet we don't hear enough about victims' well-being, right? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And we can only hope that she's doing okay, especially since her recovery is, as you pointed out, Asad, is not just physical, it's also mental. And experience like this can be so traumatic. So I hope there is someone out there catering to her emotional needs as well. 
and again there is this matter of other possible victims so i hope police is paying attention they're investigating it's important that they do that so let's go back to haslet the police took over 1000 items from his home as possible evidence but the content of most of those items has not yet been released the washington post only reported on several hard drives which an officer said held pornographic content and last but not the least haslet's preliminary hearing was originally scheduled for december 2nd but it was pushed back until january 10th no one has said why asad do you have any theories any reasons you know i think that there could be many reasons that a court date is pushed back it could be anything from you know just scheduling conflicts to just missing evidence to covid so there could be many reasons that that happened and here's the thing even after the preliminary court hearing is set the final sentencing may take a while right oh these things could drag on for years uh for sure Oh wow. But most recent information that we have is from November 28th when the Kansas City Local News KSHB released an article telling us what Hazlet himself has said about all of this. And get this Asad, he denies all of it. He says it's all false accusations. Well, I think that if you are, you know, in his position, deny 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 is probably the only course of action that you can really do right but don't you think there is enough evidence against him so why would he deny well i i think let's look at it from his perspective which is a horrible thing to do but maybe there's no upside in him admitting to what he's done hmm i don't know the mind of a criminal but maybe in his mind he didn't do anything wrong right like these people are you know potentially psychotic right and so you know maybe in his mind he didn't do anything wrong or he's unaware of what he did was illegal wrong horrible type of thing and it could be because he's trying to protect his son remember we mentioned earlier that hazlet has a son certainly apparently hazlet's wife has filed for temporary joint custody of their child and in response he's saying that these accusations are false so maybe he just wants to keep his son and is making this shit up which is even more infuriating for me because this guy commits all these crimes and now he's like ah oh, i didn't do anything and i also wonder as so this is something that we discussed in one of our previous cases as well he probably is one of those psychotic racist white supremacists who thinks it's his duty to do what he did to those women right Yes, yeah, Adi, I think that without knowing a lot of the details in the case, it's really hard to fully understand, you know, what Haslet was thinking and maybe we'll never know. But I think your assessment is correct is is this kind of mindset of white supremacy, racial animosity leading to many crimes and a lot of crimes that are going unreported. So, Asad, what do we think then? Was it racially motivated? Was it a hate crime? I think that for me this is a tough one. I think that without knowing more about Haslett himself, I mean clearly, you know, a couple posts that have come to light, the story that we hear from TJ, I think that it's clear that he has bigotry and he is a racist. I think whether or not that gets to the level of a hate crime as opposed to him just being a crazy psychotic killer 
an abductor, I think I'd, I'd need to know a little bit more, but I, I'm leaning more towards, yes, this is a hate crime. How about you? It is difficult to decipher whether it's a hate crime or, as you said, whether he's just psychotic. But at the same time, I keep going back to those social media posts. And I would also like to know more about who his other captives were. And if they were all black women, then that would probably indicate that it was racially motivated. Having said that, I'm leaning more towards hate crime because of how this whole thing has panned out, his social media posts, his focus exclusively on black women, his MO. But as you said, we cannot make determination one way or the other, given that there is lack of information. And we would like to make that once we have all that information. Certainly. Yeah. But before we go, let me add something here. I said, while I was reading through articles and news stories, I did find some humbling statistics through CNN about abductions in the U.S. Proportionately, the racial group that accounts for the most missing person cases in the U.S. is African-Americans, who make up 13% of the population. But guess what? Account for 34% of missing person cases. Wow, that's shocking. And beyond that, African-Americans account for only 13% of publicized missing person news stories. Unbelievable. So yeah, I mean, it makes sense to me when I think about the news stories that, that become national or even regional, you know, they're usually white or white presenting people that have gone missing. True. And if this doesn't point to disparity and injustice, I said, I really don't know what does. Because get this, how many do you think white people account for? It's got to be a substantial number. Yes, it is. I said it's 70% of news stories. Wow. And you can find this data through the FBI National Crime Information Center and the FBI's Census Bureau. Of course, anyone going missing is a tragedy. We are not discounting that, but we can't ignore the crazy difference in visibility here. And it's important to acknowledge that. And by the way, this took me down a bit of a rabbit hole and I found this simulator I want us both to try. And it's called Are You Pressworthy? So basically, the Columbia Journalism Review compiled media data on missing persons' stories and then created a simulator that allows you, you and I, to calculate your press value. Oh, fascinating. So this is basically just a number, FII, of news stories that your case, if you were to go missing, may attract based on age, gender, and of course, race. I can already tell that you and I are going to have a low value uh, based on what you just described, age, gender, and race. And I can't wait to take this and see what comes of it. Do you want to try it now? Uh, let's do it. Do you, want, do you want me to try it? Yeah. Okay. And I'll try it too. So it asks for your age, your gender, as you mentioned, and then where do I live in the state? And then it asks for my ethnicity. And this is always a challenge for people like you and me. Sadia, what do you put for ethnicity? Do you put Asian or do you prefer other? I put Asian. Yeah, I, I usually do Asian. I, I usually hope that there's a South Asian 
but usually there is not. And so, yes, I also put Asian. This one offers Middle Eastern and North African as well, or prefer not to say. So I'm going to click Asian as well. The results that you're about to see are drawn from current reporting on missing people in the U.S. The results are loading for me. And it says, I'm, <laughs> okay, ready, Sadia? Yeah. So you've taken the test. Have I, I've taken the test as well now. Do you want to go first? I got a seven, I said. Oh, you got a seven. So that's seven news stories is what you would get. Yes. Uh, I got an eight. So I'm guessing that <laughs> that's because I'm a male and and, and maybe you're a female. I, I, that, I'm just trying to guess what the differences are. So here's the thing. When I switch to New York City from where I live, it gives me 20. Oh, so location has a lot to do with it. But guess what? How many do you think a white female in her early 20s gets? Oh, man. <laughs> 20? 120. Oh, 100. Wow. So you're saying that if I can do some quick math, basically a white woman in her 20s is going to get 20 times the coverage that you're going to get you, Sadia, as, a, as someone uh, not in her 20s um, and also not white. Right. That's fascinating. And I want our listeners to take this simulated test and share their numbers with us. And we may even share these numbers on our next episode, Asad. What do you think? I think, yeah, I think that'd be great. If you do share it with us or tweet at us and let us know your demographics and how many numbers that you would have. I'm looking at this some more, Sadia, because it is really quite informative and it says, a maximum of 14% of Americans would hear about me, hmm. which is really interesting to hear. And it would primarily be people on the West Coast. You know, more than interesting, I said, it's sad. It's just so sad to see that if you and I went missing, nobody would pay attention yeah, to us. Totally. And, you know, this is part of what we're trying to do in this podcast as well, is bring awareness to the crimes and, and stuff that's happening to people that aren't white and in the majority. And exactly. Maybe we can bump up that number from eight to nine for some of these people, right? Absolutely. So, all right, everyone, one last thing before we go. If you're interested in more conversations about missing persons and racial disparity in the media, check out the show Black and Missing on HBO. There's also a corresponding website that we've linked in the description. I came across both of these pretty recently, and it's something on my watch list. Part of the fight against this type of stuff is educating ourselves and others, and that's what Asad and I are trying to do through this podcast. Thanks so much for listening to Invisible Hate. If you want to learn more, check out links in the show notes about the case. Please email us your thoughts on this story or any other story that you guys want us to cover. You can reach us at info at invisiblehatepodcast.com. Guys, it's a new show and we are trying really hard to bring you important content. So don't forget to give us some good reviews on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. How about a five star today? So once you finish listening to this episode, Go to one of your favorite streaming platforms and review us. Give us a thumbs up. You can also tweet us or hit us up on Instagram. Just search for Invisible Hate Podcast. Thanks again for listening. If you like what you hear, please share it with a friend. That's how we grow. 
Invisible Hate is a joint production of Trophilia Media and Immigrantly. We would like to thank our team, which includes Michaela Strother, Isabel Havens, Lindsay Gamble, and Paroma Chakravarti. Our music was done by Simon Hutchinson. We will be back next week with another important story, another important hate crime for us to analyze. Until next time, I am Sadia Khan. And I'm Asad Bhatt.